Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and this is a great hour for me because I get a chance to once again talk to the amazing Becky Pippert. She's going to be joining me for the full hour. Peter Kapsner, who was on the show in the previous hour, I talked to him and is sticking around, so I'm awfully delighted Peter's going to stay as well. So this is going to be a terrific hour. We're going to talk to uh, Becky about some of the uh, stumbling blocks for evangelism that Christians have today. She just got back from a, a great trip in the UK where she had a terrific speaking opportunity and came back with a boatload of uh, stories that we're going to hear about today. Uh, Becky is uh, not only a, a global conference speaker, she's an evangelist and she's the author of 11 books. Her latest book is called Stay Salt is because it's the, it's the fruit of decades of experience in evangelism around the world. It's an amazing book. If you have not got a copy of it yet, you should go check it out. You can go to Amazon.com. You can always uh, check it out. Probably download Chapter 1 if you want. Give it a give it a look. Uh, Stay Salt is the name of the book. Becky, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bill. It's just great to be able to talk to yeah. you again. No kidding. And Peter's with us, too. And Peter was with us once before, so it's awfully yes. nice to have him here, too. Yeah, great to hear your voice, Becky. Hey, you too, Peter. This is going to be fun. Yeah, so, Becky, you got back from the U.K., I think, recently, and yeah. it you, you said that, you know, U.K. is one of the most culturally tumultuous times they've ever experienced. Yeah, it is so interesting, uh, Bill, to... Uh, be you know now that COVID allows us to travel, we've started been you know traveling quite a bit. And what was so interesting to me is that I think we are living in one of the most tumultuous, uncertain, and challenging times in modern American history, and not just the pandemic. And that's been something, but riots in the city and uh, political divisiveness, <laughs> inflation, you know, all of the above. What fascinated me, because the U.K. and Europe, where we used to live for seven years, it has been secularized for so long. It was the Q&A that really fascinated me. It was a conference of about 5,000 all across the U.K. And one of the very first questions I got is they said, Becky, it seems to us, whenever you know we're reading all this, um, in the news is that the American Republic seems to be on the brink of collapse. And we worry about it over here mm. because as America goes, the impact, if, if in fact, the, what, what, it, you know, it, it, we don't know which way it's going to go, but it will have an impact on the world. And they said, uh, do you think the American Republic, as we have known it, do you think it's going to collapse? I said, we don't know. But here's what we do know. God has allowed us to live for such a time as this. And if ever there was a time in your country and in America where we need to hear the hope of the gospel, it is now. And so then their questions were interesting. What are the cultural challenges that face us? Uh, both in the UK and here, and what are the stumbling blocks and what has God given us that will help us to meet it? 
Um, so it was it was a fascinating experience, and we do need to understand the cultural challenges and the opportunities here in America for evangelism. All right, Becky, I want to go back to some of these questions they were asking because I'm so fascinated with the the uh, what came your way. So can we back up and talk about some of those things? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So for, all right, but just explain your question a little more. Yeah. Well, you, you said that there were, um, there were the questions that were coming your direction about the collapse of the United States. Is that possible? And you talked about the incredible opportunity we have right now uh, to yeah. reach people for Christ. But then you were saying that there were some some stumbling blocks and some some obstacles, right. and th- those are some of the things I'd love to discuss. Okay, let's take first. What are the cultural challenges? There we go. That we That's have. the word I was looking for. Okay. Yeah. And I I just don't think there is any question that America is not the same. That was the thing they kept saying in UK and in Europe. We've been secular for a very long time. But it seems to us that it, it, this secularization has come to American shores at an astonishing speed. So that's the first thing I want to say. If we're going to be effective in witness, we need to know America has changed. The cultural landscape has changed. The gospel is as glorious as it has ever been. But we now have a culture that's increasingly post-truth and post-Christian, not merely not Christian, but set against Christianity. Now, again, that depends on what part of America you live in. You know, you certainly see it on the on the coast, but but we're seeing it across, I think, America. And um, so we're living in a culture that reflects the growing distortions, I say, of post-modernity. Now, I think we've talked about this before, but the collapse of a belief in absolute truth. And I'm talking about this as a culture, the shift from authority to personal preference, the designer religion worldview, that approach of picking and choosing what we believe cafeteria style, a little karma here. (laughs) The sexual revolution is a tremendous challenge in evangelism. And there is increased hostility to faith that comes from the cultural influencers who are portraying Christianity so falsely, media, academia, entertainment uh, industry. But uh, the thing that I find so encouraging is secularism doesn't have the power to erase the creational longings that God has placed in every human being. In fact, if anything, I think our present culture is exacerbating these creational longings that God has placed in us. A hunger for meaning, for worth, for identity, security that can only be found in in Him. Um, I I, I can't remember if I told you the story before, but... A friend of mine called about a year into COVID, and she said, and she was an atheist, and we'd had many spiritual conversations. I never got anywhere. I mean, she just did not seem responsive. She was quite closed. And she said, you know, Becky, I've always believed that we're the gods and masters of our destiny. But when a simple microscopic organism can bring our entire planet to a halt, It shows how vulnerable we are. I've never seen with greater clarity my own mortality, and I'm not in control of my destiny. And she goes, Becky, 
if I really am in control, if I really am God, I'm in big trouble. And I said, okay, why is that? She goes, who would want to rely on a God like me when I have to take medication (laughs) for anxiety? She said, the truth be told, I make a lousy God, and it's exhausting to try. And I said, oh, Mary, we all make lousy gods. And the reason it's exhausting is because trying to be God is way beyond our pay grade. And what she reveals in that, and this is what I've seen everywhere in the States, a secularist worldview doesn't have the power to meet our longings for meaning and worth. And do you know what? It was the very first time she was open to really engaging in what does it mean to be a Christian and uh, to take a look at Jesus. Um, and I, I think it is, it's also very important to realize that um, so often when we're talking to people, they are rejecting what they think is Christianity is a very false view of Christianity. They've gotten it from secular media, et cetera. And so what I say to them, I'll say, well, you know, tell me, what, what, what do you, you feel strongly about rejecting Christianity? What do you think it means to be a Christian? And when they tell me, I say, oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I reject that too. That isn't Christianity. So we need to be encouraged uh, and not um, and, and boldly courageous. You know, there there is more openness than I think we realize. Um, precisely because all this calamity in our culture is beyond uh, human ability to solve, and there's a greater openness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Becky Pippert is my guest. Uh, her latest book is called "Stay Salt: The World Has Changed, Our Message Must Not." And Becky, one of the things I just love that you shared about that conversation with your friend Mary, who you say is an atheist, is that I'm listening to you talk about your conversation with Mary, and it's clear to me that Mary loves you. (laughs) Well, I I think, and and you know partly why that is? And I think because she knows knows that I love her. Totally, Yeah. yeah. And that's what makes the difference. Uh, you know, and that's one of the things we can talk about in our in our next segment. But that is, what is evangelism? How yeah. do you do it? Oh yeah, so you good, know? so good. Uh, yeah, so we'll take a break. Uh, Becky Pippert once again is our guest. You can go to beckypippert.org. B e c k y p i p p e r t. She's written eleven books, and her latest one again is called "Stay Salt." The world has changed. Our message has not. Joining me today, my guest is Becky Pippert. You can find her at beckypippert.org. Her latest book is called Stay Salt, The World Has Changed, Our Message Must Not. It's a fantastic book. And uh, Becky, I'm being reminded that you did live in the UK for many years. And Peter, my friend here in the studio, uh, went to school in Scotland for many years. He's been over there several times in the last uh, couple of months. But 
Um, he had a question uh, or a comment that uh, I thought was an interesting tie-in to what we were just saying. Peter? Yeah, especially with what you were talking about with Mary, uh, Becky, because I think one of the more striking features of the impact of secularization in the UK is that you have these gigantic church buildings that were built you know, 1600, 1700s, 1800s, and they sit and they're, they're dormant and they're empty now. They're just, they, they don't have an influence in the public sphere. And when we talk about that coming to America, I know a, a good friend of mine this last week was just saying that his daughter was invited to help lead worship at one of the local satellite campus megachurches here close to where we live. And they showed up and again, this gigantic building. It wasn't Renaissance architecture. It was sort of a big warehouse sort of space. And it was meant for 3,000 people and maybe only a couple of hundred people we're in this gigantic building. Mm. And as we, as we talk about it, and uh, getting to your friend uh, Mary, that maybe the, the sharing of the good news is going to be less moving forward in a secularized culture of inviting people to come to church on a Sunday and mm. actually going out into this public square and the public sphere mm. and loving people, being kind to people, taking care of yeah. people and bearing witness yeah. in that kind of way. Exactly. Um, and it is now I, I know of, of quite a few churches in the UK. We were there for seven years and we actually ministered in evangelism throughout the UK, but also throughout Europe. But we lived in Belfast for three years as a base then in Oxford for three years as a base, in this, and then in London. And what you're saying is exactly right. There are so many of these great big churches um, that, uh, you know, are empty or they're using it for very different purposes. Mm-hmm. But, but there are some very thriving churches. But I think what you are saying is, is exactly right, and that is I think it's the way that Jesus did evangelism, and that is that we start with the personal. And we're going to talk about that, I think, in this segment, you know, but it is, it is important. The more secular culture becomes, the more important it is that we are listening and loving, but also knowing how to speak the truth when the time is right. Well, I would love to continue that discussion, Becky, about being loving. I think that's something we can't talk about enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, what are the stumbling blocks that we face, especially in the West? You know, <clears throat> our ministry has been around the world, and so we've had a fascinating ability to compare, let's say, the global, uh, the global North, and that is what we would call um, Western civilization. So we've spent a lot of time, of course, in America, UK, Europe, and Australia. But then you compare it with the global south, where we've spent a lot of time as well, South America, Africa, Asia. And what we know and what missiologists know, that it's the West that's struggling. It's struggling with faith. Consequently, the church is struggling with evangelism. They don't know how to speak in to this increasingly cultural uh, wasteland, while faith in the global south is booming, and so is evangelism. So why are we struggling in the West? Well, obviously, one of the issues is because we've become secularized, and the secular culture has impacted the church, I think, more than we realize, especially in our confidence as Christians in two things, I think. One is we need to be confident there really is true truth. The gospel really is the answer uh, to life's problems, and I think we have become less confident in that. Another thing, uh, when you compare the Western church 
to say the early church in Acts or the global South Asia, Africa, South America. One of the glaring deficiencies in the West is our lack of dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we've gotten... When, when I wrote Out of the Salt Shaker, that was the first book I ever wrote, and it was the first book I did on evangelism. Now, I had I was 28. <laughs> I was on intervarsity staff in the Pacific Northwest at Reed College in Portland and Willamette and Whitman. I hadn't been raised in a Christian home. And what I saw was there was this prevailing approach to evangelism. Now, I'm talking early 80s, where the approach to evangelism was Pick a victim. (laughs) Share the gospel in a formulaic way and get as many people as possible to acknowledge in the shortest time possible their faith in Jesus and then move on. So in the 80s, the approach to evangelism, the good thing you could say is that was they were stronger in their confidence in the truth of the gospel, but they were very weak in terms of understanding the importance of relationship and love. Now, I wrote my second book on evangelism 40 years later with a lot of books in between. <laughs> Stay salt, the world has changed, the message must not why. Because I saw that our problem in evangelism was now the complete reverse of when I wrote Out of the Salt Shaker. One, the culture had changed so much. But also, Christians today, especially the younger, they're much stronger, I think. Now, I don't, you know, I'm sure this varies from place to place, but I think they're a little stronger in seeing the need for relationship. They haven't a clue how to speak the truth in love with people who have a different worldview. So what then are the stumbling blocks that we face? Um, Everywhere I go in the West, in the U.S., U.K., Europe, Australia, here's what I hear. I I can't possibly engage in evangelism, Becky. Why? Well, I don't have the gift of the evangelist, and I've got the wrong personality. (laughs) I'm not an extrovert. I'm this and that. Okay, what did Jesus say? His last words before he went to heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then sandwiched in there is therefore go and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you until the end of the age. Jesus, now this is called the Great Commission, he didn't say one word about gifts or personality types. He reassures us that all the authority has been given to him, and he is always with us. What Jesus didn't say was, go ye therefore, all you extroverts, (laughs) all you with dynamic communication skills, all you gifted evangelists, okay, and all you clergy. Go and make disciples, and the rest of you just hang out, sing some hymns. Until our return. That is not what the Lord said. Jesus commands and calls every Christian from every culture and every nation, uh, regardless of our personality or our, person, our, our, our gifts, to be his witnesses. Uh, the truth is, not all of us are gifted as evangelists. In fact, I would say a majority of us aren't gifted as evangelists, but we're all called to be witnesses. We are all sent by God into this broken world to be bearers of good news. And the reason why Jesus commanded us to be witnesses is because 
God the Father loves people. Now, here's where we get into the love aspect. God the Father sent the most precious thing he had to come and die, his son Jesus. God loves sinners and he loves saints. He loves the lost, he loves the found, and so must we. So, God wants to use us and personality or gifts. So, why do we struggle? I don't think we understand biblical evangelism. And there are always three aspects to me as I understand biblical evangelism. The first is this. Evangelism is visual. Sharing the love of Jesus. You know, in 1 Thess 2.8, when Paul says, we were gentle among you because we loved you so much. And we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our own lives as well. If unbelievers don't see the love of Jesus in our lives, um, we're not going to get anywhere. Love opens the door. We won't get anywhere unless we genuinely engage with people who do not know the Lord. And this is where justice comes in, by the way. Justice is a part of this visual demonstration of love. The mistake we've made in in the church is that we have tried to replace justice for uh, our need to share the gospel. So you begin with love. Evangelism is visual. Second biblical aspect of evangelism, it's verbal communicating the truth through the gospel and through our testimony. Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Love opens the door. But the interesting thing to me, uh, to Bill and, and Peter, is that love is still not enough. We must also share the truth. That's why the disciples were always gossiping the gospel. And thirdly, uh, it's not just visual, it's not just verbal, it's invitational. We are to invite people at the right time, and that's very important, at the right time, to respond to God's call to surrender their lives, and that requires us to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. We can invite, but only God can convert. Um, now, I don't know how long we've got. There's a third stumbling block. We probably have to do that in the next yeah, segment. We probably will, uh, Becky, because we just have a minute before the break. But again, I love the power of the invitation and how much I love reminding people how powerful it is. Whether it's to invite someone to church or a Bible study or for coffee uh, or for saying, would you like to know about Jesus and make a decision tonight? Just the power of the invitation is so important. i got to just say one thing, though, and that is... I think people are a little bit more fearful about, again, depending on what part of America, about being invited to church too soon. Yeah. Invite them first for a coffee. Amen. <laughs> Invite them first so you can get to know each other. Right, exactly. Becky Pippert is our guest. Uh, her most recent book is Stay Salt. The World Has Changed. Our message must not. I'll take a short break, and we'll be back with Becky in just a minute. Show with Bill Arno. 
So glad you joined me today. My guest is Becky Pippard. She's uh, written 11 books. The one we're chatting about today is Stay Salt, The World Has Changed, Our Message Must Not. The first Becky Pippard book that I purchased was Hope Has Its Reasons, The Search to Satisfy Our Deepest Longings. I could tell you exactly on my library shelf where it is. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How many it is from the left, I could find it in a nanosecond, because it's so good, Becky. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, uh, Peter Kapsner is still with me, and I'm so glad good. that he's been able to stay and listen to this. And Peter said during the break that Becky has this wonderful ability to sort of give us a little kick in behind, but it doesn't feel like a kick. It just feels like a, an encouragement. <laughs> Did oh, I say that right, Peter? I, I think so, yeah. Very spirit-inspired exhortation and feels like an appropriate <laughs> kick in, yeah, in, in how you said that. So, indeed. Yeah. It's, very, it's just very invitational, Becky, because I think we do get paralyzed, and, and you've been talking about the stumbling blocks related to sharing yeah. our faith, and and just hearing you talk about it, it seems like, oh, yeah, I could do that, too, and, and maybe I've forgotten a little bit how. Exactly. That is really the key, is that it is easier than we think. And that kind of leads us into the next segment, I think, of God doesn't send us out empty-handed. He knows we're fearful. He knows we're inadequate. But what has God given us that enables us to do this? And I think it's three things. God has given us the means, the model, and the message. Um, it is uh, evangelism involves depending upon the power of the Holy Spirit, displaying the love of Jesus and declaring the truth of the gospel. Okay, I had said that already, that evangelism was we needed to learn how the, the, those three things, how to do it. But what is so exciting to me is that God gives us the means and the model and, and the message. Okay, so what are the means? We are given the power of the Holy Spirit when we come to Jesus. And what fascinates me is that the Apostle Paul pleaded with the risen Christ who was in heaven three times to take away his weakness, which was uh, the thorn of the flesh, which we don't know exactly what that was. But, but Paul was saying it like, in essence, I don't like this weakness. I'm sick of it. Take it away. And the Lord Jesus said, no, Paul, because my power is made perfect through weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God is delighted to reveal his glory through our human weakness. All through the Bible, we see there is this profound relationship between human weakness and God's power. And we see it all the time because God uses people who are always complaining that they're weak and inadequate. And what does the Lord say? He doesn't say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> you know, if he's speaking to Americans, he might go, maybe you suffer from low self-esteem. <laughs> Lord, the Lord would not say that. But it is. And no, when they're saying, I'm weak and inadequate, he says, yes, you are, but I'm not. And what does, when the Lord says to Paul, my power is made perfect, through your weakness, Paul said, well, all right then. I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you see, it's such an amazing encounter. And then you see how Paul lives it out in his ministry. 
1 Corinthians 2 when he says, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. Now, we think of Paul as, and he was the supreme evangelist. But he said, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So your faith might not rest on on human uh Uh, human power. What Jesus was saying to Paul is don't, and this is what I really want your listeners to understand, we mustn't be ashamed of our weakness. Why? Because there is another who dwells within us. And that is the the power of the Holy Spirit and the very presence of Christ. We think it's self-confidence we need, but really it's God-confidence. So just that part of remembering the means. God has given us the means in our weakness. The first qualification of being used by God is acknowledging our smallness, our inadequacy. You may say, I'm lousy in evangelism. Okay, that's fine. But what's the second thing? You acknowledge your weakness and then learn to lean on the power of God through the Holy Spirit, who has the strength and power we need. You know, one thing that really changed in my life is when I began to realize I had to practice the presence of Jesus throughout the day. I I began to consciously acknowledge his presence was with me, that I was not alone, and that everything I need was Uh, through the riches of Christ and his glory. And so I began to remind myself in a day, Becky, you're not alone. The Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is with you. You're not alone. And then I began to thank him uh, throughout the day. Thank you that I have access to what I need through my faith in Jesus. Then I would pray. Let's say uh, any situation you're in, but let's say this is evangelism. I'd say, Lord, Lead me to the person that you're seeking. Open my eyes. Who is it? And then I start talking with somebody, and I would silently say, Oh, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, this person is difficult. Give me the love of Christ. Lord, come, give me the power. I'm telling you, it made such a difference when I realized that whoever I was speaking to was a three-way uh, conversation in a way that that I was not alone and God was with me. It made a huge difference. So that's the first thing: is that we need to learn to accept our weakness. Now that doesn't mean that we don't seek to understand answers to questions, and you know, you keep growing and doing the best you can. But it's accepting our weakness and depending upon the power of the Spirit. The second thing is the model of Jesus, which is God has given us the model of Jesus, which is the love of Christ. It's not just his example, but he fills us with his love. You know, I was asked on a podcast recently, he said, Becky, how the thing I hear all the time from Christians is how can I more quickly share the gospel and my story, my testimony with unbelievers? And I said, okay, that, that the gospel's glorious, our testimonies are sacred, but you need to understand what you're really asking me. What you're asking me is, how can I get people onto my turf more quickly? And I said, Jesus shows us exactly the answer. You have to get on their turf first. Jesus had compassion. He didn't preach first. 
when he was talking with somebody. He really sought to understand who that person was. He looked. He listened. He asked questions. He roused curiosity. And when he did speak the message to those outside the faith, it wasn't formulaic or memorized or one-size-fits-all. It's fascinating to see how, how differently religious people responded to the obvious sinners than how Jesus did. Um, now, I don't know how much time we have left in this segment. Five I could minutes. Give me a, five minutes. Mm-hmm. Good. Let me give you an example. In, um, and by the way, the third thing, you know, he gives us the means through the power of the Spirit. He gives us the love, and we can look at the Gospels and see how Jesus did it. What we'll talk about in the third is um, that God gives us the message, the truth of the Gospel. But when you start looking at Gospel stories, I am so moved to see how Jesus got on their turf. Now, what was really interesting, a story I love, is um, Luke 7, and Simon is this very self-assured, self-righteous Pharisee, invites Jesus to this very large dinner, and then insults him by not providing a common hospitality, which was so important in Middle Eastern culture. Now, nobody knows quite why. He was controversial. Jesus was very controversial. Um, but, but, you know, I think it had a little bit to do with wanting to not look, um, he wanted to impress his friends that he brought along. So it's this great big (laughs) dinner outside. And then because it was outside, it was very typical for people to come and, you know, the little people as it were and, and be on the outside listening. Well, here comes a known prostitute comes to listen to Jesus. Now, you don't realize this till the end of the story, but her response seems to indicate that she'd heard Jesus speak before, and she believed his gospel. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean she was saved, but she was, you know, she was hearing good news for the first time. She sees how terrible that Jesus is being insulted, her emotions get the best of her, and she is so grieved that Simon insulted Jesus that she comes to Jesus. She pours the oil of perfume on his feet, which normally slaves would do it on their hair. She wipes his feet with her tears because she is so upset that he's being treated so badly, dries her feet with his hair, with her hair. Simon is horrified. And we know that what we, we find out in the text that he's saying, this can't be a holy man. He allows a sinful woman to touch him. And Jesus tells him the parable, the people who owned a money lender, lender, uh, one owed a whole lot, the other one just owed 50, but neither could pay them back. So the money lender footed the bill. And he said, so who do you think might love the money lender more? And Simon says, well, the, the one who owed more. And then he says, do you see this woman? It's the key to the whole passage. How do you see people? How do we see non-Christians? Simon seemed to define this prostitute by her sins. Jesus, I think, seems to be saying, hey, sin is a given. We all share that problem. But I think we can also start looking at another way of seeing people, and that is by their response to grace. And he said, Simon, she loves so much because she was forgiven of so much. And then he says, I forgive you. Now, when you look at the way that Jesus, the way he responds to both self-righteous religious people and to well-known sinners, 
it is amazing what you see in how he, how Jesus sees people and how he wants all of us to recognize we all desperately need grace. And uh, this is one of the problems with being, uh, you know, the religious is that we can become very self-righteous. And it's, uh, I've done this passage in Bible studies with non-Christians. I love doing Bible studies with all (laughs) non-Christians. The response... Why does that not surprise me? (laughs) (laughs) And I've actually, I've written a lot of seeker Bible studies. And one of the seeker Bible studies I've written is called... Uncovering the life of Jesus. If you could see how unbelievers come and say, I didn't know Jesus was like that. I didn't know. I thought Jesus was like uh, Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee, because they've never read the Bible. We have got to get our friends. We've got to listen, love, ask questions, rouse their curiosity, and then one way to expose who Jesus is get them looking at the person of Jesus. I, it's one of the most powerful things we can do in evangelism. Get them looking at Jesus and say, you don't have to believe in the Bible. You don't have to believe in anything. But how are you going to make an intelligent decision if you've never read what he says? Mm. And, oh, my goodness, the people I've seen come to Christ just encountering Jesus. So, so good, wow. Becky. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue on the message so far becky has talked about the means which is the power of the holy spirit the model jesus model love and how to engage in spiritual conversations and then when we come back we're going to talk about the message god has given us the truth of the gospel and how to frame the gospel according to the person and their life issues that's next just joined us you missed uh, a great hour to this point so you do have to go check it out at the podcast make sure you hear it from the beginning my guest is becky pippert you can learn more about becky at becky org. that's p-i-p-p-e-r-t and we're talking about evangelism today which is one of her most favorite topics and <laughs> we're just chatting about uh, how how christians speak about faith in a in a today's post-truth and post-christian world and we talked about the means and the model. Becky, let's get to the message. Yes. And what we have established when we look at Jesus, his enormous compassion. He didn't look at people as merely evangelistic projects, but he understood. He sought to understand them, ask provocative questions, etc. And people, but one of the things that fascinates me as I keep reading and rereading the Gospels is that people began to feel the love of God because they felt heard and understood by Jesus. He really did take time with people. And what fascinates me is that I, I remember when I you know, became a Christian, not coming from a Christian home, and so I was looking at how Jesus did it, and what I noticed was there wasn't a formula. There weren't three set questions he always asked everybody. And when he shared the message, the essence of the gospel is the same. But he never shared the gospel in the exact same way. Why? Because 
he framed the gospel, as it were, according to who that person was. So the metaphors and the language he used was very dependent upon that person. He framed the gospel in a way that responded to who they were. Now, another interesting thing, he didn't give the gospel to every person he met. The Pharisaic lawyer who said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He never gave him a gospel. The man was very proud, and he really challenged him to go and, uh, um, you know, and to learn when he said, well, what is it? What do you think is the most important thing? How do you read the law? Love God, he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes, go out and do that and get back to me. <laughs> <It's> kind <laughs> of interesting, you know. All right. So, for instance, I say the metaphor is the language he uses. The way he describes the gospel, I'm not talking about the essence of the message, but I'm talking about the way to introduce it was very much dependent upon the person. So Woman at the Well is a great example of that. Um, and, you know, he, he is uh, talking with her, and he already knows through prophetic, uh, the gift of, of prophetic insight, um, that she has had five husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. But what does he talk about? He talks about being thirsty, he asked for a drink and says, of course, would you give me a drink from the well? Of course, if you knew who was asking, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And then he begins to describe it. You'd never have to come back here and draw. Uh, and it, Everything he says is absolutely appropriate to her life. Why does she come at noon? She doesn't want to be with people who are going to be judging her and shaming her for having uh, uh, an immoral lifestyle. Uh, She's gone from man to man to man, and he goes, you know what? The water I give, it wells up to eternal life, and it satisfies that thirst. Uh, And and it's, it's amazing to watch the entire language and metaphors immediately apply to her life. And then, uh, then he, she, and then when she says, "All right, well, give me the water," then this is a very important point in evangelism. Um, you you need to know that they understand what the gospel is. We don't rush to bring them to a, you know say something that they don't truly understand yet. And he shows she goes, "So tell me, you know, uh, all right, give it to me." And he goes, "Why don't you go call your husband?" Well, I don't have a husband. And that's when he says, yes, that's true. And the man you're, you've had five husbands, the man you're living with now is not your husband. Thank you for telling me the truth. Amazing how he deals with sin. Absolutely acknowledges that it's a problem. But at the same time, thank you for telling me the truth. Okay. We need to find out who is this person we're talking to. The chapter in that's John 4. John 3 is Nicodemus. You've got to be born again. He talks to other. Every way he speaks, he frames it in a way that actually responds to their life issues. I just, one of the things we need to do is we have to fall in love with the gospel all over again. The unbelievable beauty of the gospel and that it truly does meet our deepest needs. It truly is an answer. But So we need to keep going deeper and deeper in our own understanding of the gospel. But we also need to learn how to tie the life issues of the person we're speaking to to connect and help them see 
why the gospel of Jesus Christ is an answer to where they're struggling. Becky, uh, that was so beautifully explained, and it reminded me of a story which might perfectly illustrate an application Mm -hmm. of this, Mm -hmm. and that is your former hairdresser in London. (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness, that's right. Well, um, it was very interesting because I was just in London, and and, uh, went, gosh, that's an amazing story, went back to the same hair salon because I'd lived there for seven years. And so anyway, my um, hairdresser was gay and um, uh, he was, I, I got to know him well and I shared my faith. He shared his life. And one day I walked in and he just looked absolutely crestfallen. And finally I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, Theo, are you going to tell me what's wrong? And he said, I can't believe it. Of all my clients, you're the only one that actually looked at my face. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm devastated. My, my uh, partner that I thought would, he, I, I based everything on him. I thought that he could solve all of life's problems for me, and I worshipped him. And he's left me, and he's not coming back. And he said, oh, yeah, but that's right, you're a Christian and he was now you're not like this. You, you know, you've really, I know you really care about me. But he said, you're going to say that the whole reason this relationship collapsed is uh, because I'm gay. I said, actually, that wasn't the thing I was going to say. I think it is something uh, deeper than even sexual identity. I said, because I have a straight friend who just told me the exact same thing. <laughs> she had, living with a man, thought this was it. And he left her for another woman, and I said, she is clinically depressed and actually suicidal. But I said, what fascinates me is you both said that you worshipped this partner. And he goes, well, why is that interesting? I said, because we really are worshipping people. We have worshipping natures. God made us this way. And if we don't worship God, we're going to worship something else. But the problem is nobody can live up to being God in our lives. They're not big enough. We've got to build our lives on something big enough and strong enough. And he said, uh, that's big enough to build our lives upon. And he said, I can't believe you're saying that because the last thing my partner said to me when he left was, it is exhausting trying to be God for you. It's way Mm. above my pay grade. I can't do it. And he said, so what's the problem? And I said, well, the good news is that we really have been created to worship. Don't mock that. Don't say, well, I'm, don't get cynical. You are right that you are a worshiping creature. I said, but the difficulty is we have been called to worship God, and if we don't worship God, we try to worship something else. I said, in fact, the Bible, and it's never enough. It never works. And I said, the Bible actually has a name for that. It's called an idol. And I said, idols or a gob substitute. And I remember he turned my chair around. Remember, I'm at the hair salon. And he looks at me with such intensity. And he says, you are telling me that all of my suffering right now is that I've been worshiping the wrong thing? I said, yes, and so have I. I have tried to do the exact same thing, and so have all of us. I said, we've all tried worshiping the wrong thing, and it doesn't work. It was such an amazing encounter, and he said, "Um, Becky, you've given me a Bible. You have given me a Bible study, and I've never looked at it before. 
And he said, I am leaving. I'm going back to my country because I am in such a mess. But he said, I am going to read this. The amazing thing, when I came back, I got my hair cut, so I wasn't back till about a month. And so I you know, was a woman this time that was uh, cutting my hair. And she goes, I want to tell you something. She said, on, on that, that week that you were in the salon, the next week was his last week. And so we had this business meeting, and we had a lot to talk about. Do you know the only thing he wanted to talk about is what you said? Wow, wow. That's fantastic. And he said, she said, Becky, we talked about it for a long time, all of us, because we all went, we're worshiping the wrong things, and all of us have romance issues. And you said that we've all got a God complex. We keep getting ourselves and God mixed up. And she said, one of the guys said, wouldn't you like to hear her when she's actually speaking? Or do you think we'd even recognize her? You know, would she sound real religious, you know? Yeah. And the amazing thing, I know we've got to wrap here. The amazing thing was I was on BBC Radio 4 at one of their shows that's called Sunday Worship. And I said, I'm going to be on the show (laughs) giving a sermon (laughs) in about two weeks. And when I came in, they began clapping and saying, you know what? We love what you said. But when we heard you speak, you're still our Becky. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's our show for the night. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.